Our lesson this morning is we're looking at the forgiveness of God. Remember last week we looked at the love of God. We looked at what it means for what is involved with God's love for us, the sacrifices He has made to show His love for us. And so this morning, along that same thought, I want us to look at the forgiveness of God. If you notice there in Psalm 103, in those ten verses, he praises God, he praises Him with all his being, and he talks about all his many benefits there in verses in Psalm 103. In fact, if you look there in verse 3, if you go back there, uh, excuse me, verse 2, he says, Bless the Lord of my soul, and forget not all his benefits. No doubt there are many benefits to being a faithful follower of God. You know, it doesn't matter what job we take. There are certain benefits. Some jobs have more benefits uh, than others. I remember talking to one brother recently who just changed his uh, job and at his new place and asked him how he liked it. He said it was fine, but the benefits were incredible. That was the best part of it. Uh, and no doubt with God, the benefits are indeed incredible. This morning I want to talk about, I want us to to be reminded the importance of understanding God's forgiveness and the blessings that come with it. But I want to begin by looking at our very first point, looking at how God offers real forgiveness. And I put real forgiveness because when people today say when you do something that maybe wasn't quite right or say something that wasn't quite right to someone, and you apologize, sometimes they say, oh, that's okay, I forgive you, you know, no big deal. Sometimes they mean that, sometimes they don't. You know, but with God, He offers real forgiveness. With God, true repentance brings true forgiveness. If you look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32, here the Apostle Paul speaking says, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Think about that last part of verse 32 there. He says, forgiving one another. Then he says, even as God in Christ forgave you. Notice there, he talks about how we should forgive one another. But also he says, as God, how? As God in Christ forgave you. Is through the blood of Christ that we do have our sins remitted. We find, as we'll talk about a little bit later, in Galatians 3, verses 26 and 27. We also reminded this same idea in Acts chapter 2. God desires, we think about forgiveness, we have to remember that God desires true repentance. You think about, if someone has ever done something to you, and they come to you and they kind of give you a half-hearted apology, it doesn't mean very much, does it? And someone insults you or says something that's very hateful or does something that's not very kind, they kind of give you, oh yeah, well, sorry. You don't really believe that, do you? Think about this as you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, looking at verses 9 and 10. Here again the Apostle Paul speaking says, Now rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry, and I notice, in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. You think about what that means, that godly sorrow. Notice in verse 9 how he words this. For you are made sorry in a godly manner. 
Meaning they were truly sorry. Truly having sorrow over what they had done. And this isn't talking about necessarily what man does to another man, but what man has done to God when we transgress and go against God's law. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces what? He says it produces repentance. Godly sorrow produces repentance. And then he says, leading to salvation. We are, we have godly sorrow over our sin. We repent of those things. And we find forgiveness from God. And he says here, it ultimately leads to salvation. Not to be regretted. Then he says, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Why is that? Because the world isn't very sorry about very many things, are they? They're not what we call genuine anymore, are they? And we all know, we can give all kinds of examples. There's no need. If we think about, is the world genuine in the things they say and the things that they try to portray? No, not really. They're not genuine. That's why I hear people say one thing in one place and say something totally different in another place. That's not being very genuine, is it? When man humbles himself before God and repents, that is, really repents, forgiveness is then given from God. If you look at 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, he says here, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I mean, if we try to lie and say, I haven't done anything wrong, that's not wrong, there's nothing wrong with that. He says the truth is not in us, we're not being honest with ourselves or with God. And the truth of God's word is not biting in us. We're saying we've done nothing wrong when we clearly have. But notice verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, and He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Now isn't it encouraging to know that God is always ready to forgive? But notice, with everything in life, I think we have to be honest, everything in life is conditional, Right? You're going to love your spouse, but when they stop loving you and start treating you poorly, it's going to be hard to love them, right? It's conditional upon that mutual love for one another. We look here in verse 9. What is the condition? He says, if we confess our sins. To who? To God. You know, if you want to come forward at the end of the service and talk to me and say you need to ask prayers or something, that's fine. You don't have to confess your sins to me. Unlike some of our Catholic friends may teach, you confess your sins through their priest or whoever. We don't need to do that today. You confess those things to God. Unless your sins of a public nature, everything that everyone already knows about, you need to say, you know what, everyone knows about this, I need to publicly repent and show that I am publicly sorry for that. Your private sins, you pray to God for that confession, for that forgiveness. We want to come forward and ask for prayers and words of encouragement. That's just fine. But we confess our sins to God. He says here in verse 9, if we confess our sins, now notice, He is faithful and just. That's another way of saying He is fair and balanced. To do what? To forgive us our sins and then cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He doesn't hear our confession of sin and then begin to just hound us and demoralize us with His words. No, He doesn't do that. The Bible says there in verse 10, He forgives us our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Well, then we have another warning in verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. You notice how forgiveness is found between two phrases 
a warning in verses 8 and verse 10. Verse 8 is a warning saying, don't be dishonest. Verse 10 is a warning saying, don't be dishonest. Verse 9 is where you find it. Forgiveness. When we confess our sins to God. No, God offers real forgiveness. The same is not true with mankind. Mankind doesn't always accept man when he tries to express his sorrow over his mistakes. When he apologizes, he or she apologizes to say, oh, that wasn't right, I'm sorry. Man doesn't always accept that. Mankind's forgiveness too often includes hard feelings and deep-rooted grudges, saying, I'll never forget what they've done to me. That's not biblical, is it? That's how mankind oftentimes treat one another. They may not say it word for word, saying, I'll never forget what they've done, but they may say it in their heart, I'm going to forget it. You know, that's exactly the opposite of what God tells us. We think about that idea how we think about how mankind so, so many times has a very long memory. No matter if someone has apologized numerous times in sincerity. Think about this. Consider our sins and God's memory. Remember, we're talking about when we have humbled ourselves before God, we confess those things to God. There are certain things that God does for us. In fact, if you look at Isaiah chapter 43, we are reminded that God remembers our sins no more. But again, this is conditional upon our confession of those things to God. In Isaiah 43 and verse 25, he says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. What does that mean? It means exactly what it says, doesn't it? When you repent of your sins, you confess those things to God, like we saw back in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. We find here this coincides with the exact same thought. Because we can allow ourselves sometimes, we're not careful, that even though we have repented of those things, confessed those things to God, that we can still allow those sins to haunt us, can't we? The idea that we have done something, even though we have been forgiven, even though we have confessed those things to God in sincerity, they can still haunt us. In my opinion, that's one of the many tools of the devil. But Isaiah 43 and verse 25, we remind him here, the Lord does not remember our sin. He says in verse, verse 25, He blots out your transgressions, He says, for my own sake. And, he will, and I, will remember, I will not remember your sins. God holds no sins against those who repent. These sins are forgotten. Mankind really forgets the transgressions a person makes against them, but that's not the case with God. You know, if you think about, if you were to think about one of the most public sins in the Bible, what comes to your mind? Probably David and Bathsheba, right? We remember that because it's a lesson recorded for us for us to learn from. When it comes to forgiveness and confession, the Bible tells us that God does not remember those things. It doesn't mean that David's actions did not have consequences, because they most definitely did. But those things are not held against him anymore. They are forgotten by God. We find, you look at Acts chapter 3, that our sins are blotted out. They are remembered no more. Sins that are blotted out are sins that are erased. Acts 3 verse 19, Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. So the times of repression may come from the presence of the Lord. Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Blotted out. 
You ever make a to-do list? And you complete that task and you mark it off. You go back and look at that task again and again and again after you've done it. it makes no sense. You've done it. It's marked off. Forget about it. That's how God looks at our sins that are forgiven. That we have confessed, that He has forgiven. Those things are blotted out. And but also notice here again, he, he points out the steps. You know, so many verses sometimes we're not careful we can pull them out and just read them focus on that one phrase. But notice again he puts in certain steps in this verse, doesn't he? Repent, which is we are sorry, we want to change. Repent, therefore, and be converted, referencing a changed life, that your sins may be blotted out. And what will happen? So that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Times of blessings coming from God. As a direct result of our confession of our sins and our obedience to the gospel, God's message of, of of remembering our sins no more is repeated in the New Testament. We see it here in Acts 3, verse 19. We see it again in Hebrews 8 and verse 12. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. Don't you wish when you apologize to someone they would forgive you and they would want to hold that against you? It would be nice if mankind often worked that way. God, however, does. When sins are repented of. When we have godly sorrow, when we confess those things to God, we don't have to worry about those things anymore. Some lessons for us today. And when I was thinking about this lesson some, and some things we can, can learn from, one parable came to mind. I know that we could use more than just one, but I think about the prodigal son back in Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11. The prodigal son, if you remember that, Story, I'm going to use that phrase. This is a man who makes mistakes in, Leviticus, in, uh, in Luke, rather, chapter 15, beginning in verse 11. A man he made mistakes. The Bible says there in Luke 15, beginning in verse 11, then he said, A certain man had two sons. You know, I love when God, or when Christ here just says a certain man. You know why? Because it's about who he was. Because the point was much more important than who had, who had two sons. But he says, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me, so he divided to him, to them his livelihood. Now, as we have said many times before, that really was an insult because you get your inheritance when someone passes away, not while they're living. Can you imagine going to, to someone saying, Hey, I know you wrote out this much in your will for me. Can I have it now? Wow, that'd be nice, wouldn't it? But that's what we find here in verse 12. And the father gave the portion of goods that fall to them. The Bible says in verse 12, he divided them to them his livelihood, meaning both his sons, right? Verse 13, not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted all his possessions with a prodigal living, which is a, I did there actually, is a spin thrift, what the word prodigal means. He just spent it all quickly. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself as a citizen of that country, and he sent him to his fields to feed swine. And he was glad to have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. That's a horrible thing to think about. You go and you demand your inheritance, you get it, you go and you waste it all, and the next thing you know, you find yourself in the field feeding feeding pigs and their food began to look good to you because no one, as the verse 16 says, gave him anything. 
which means no one helped him, right? If you look there in verse uh, 15, it says he went and joined himself to the citizen, which means he kind of just went out and started doing it, and that citizen just said, fine, whatever. He didn't really ask, he just went and did it. It's kind of like those people who you pull up sometimes in a, in a red light and they come out and start spraying your windshield. You don't really ask them to do it, do they? Do you, do you? No, they start doing it. That's the idea here with this son. So he finds himself in the fields feeding swine and he, he decides even their, their pods of food, which no doubt would not be appetizing, began to look good to him. He was a man who made many mistakes. But as we find next though, in verses 17 through verse 24, when man decides to change, to repent, and that God is waiting for him. In this illustration, the father is waiting for the son. Verse 17 says, When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? It's kind of like we say sometimes, you snap out of it and think, What am I doing here? He says his father's servants have it better than he does. His servants have it better than he does. They have leftovers and he's eating disgusting things we don't really want to talk about. He says they have bread enough and despair and I perish with hunger. What happens in verse 17 and 18? He says, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He wants to go home, and he wants to, to repent before his father. You know, you think about this for a second. Him going home, he recognizes it's going to require him making it right. Before he could go home to the father, he had to make it right. He had to repent of those things, right? Because the first thing he says is, I'll go to my father. Not, I'll go home and start sitting out at the service and start eating. He says, I'm going to go to my father. If we want to have heaven as our home, we have to go to God first and make ourselves right before Him, don't we? We have to go to God first. We cannot go to heaven without making ourselves right and acceptable in the sight of God. So he says in verse 18, I will arise and go to my Father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. What is he doing? He's confessing his sin to his Father, saying, What I've done is wrong. I've sinned. He says, I've sinned against heaven, which is God, and before you. And he says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. That, is, that shows us he had truly sorrowful attitudes about his sin. He says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Maybe like one of your hired servants. Look at verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Was his father happy to see him return? Definitely. When God sees us coming back to him in repentance, is he happy to see us come back? The answer is yes. There are always blessings waiting for those who are wanting to come back to God in repentance. Verse 21, he says, And the son said, said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He heard the son's remarks in his confession. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against God. I'm not worthy to be called your son. But what did the father say? He began to belittle him and to just tear into him, telling him everything he's done wrong. No, that's not how God treats us. 
Look at verse 22. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. When did the blessings really return for the son? When he spoke to his father. And he confessed those things to him. Verse 23 and 24 says, And bring out the fatty calf here, bring the fatty calf here and kill it. And let us eat and be merry, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. What happened? The son repented. He decides to change, to repent, and God is pictured here as waiting for him to return. Make no mistake, the father was waiting for his son, eager for his son to return, and when he saw him from a distance, he ran out and, and brought him in, right? You know, fathers have a way of knowing their sons, knowing their daughters better than anyone else. And so when he saw him coming, I think it's a good indication he knew why he was coming back. He wasn't coming back on a horse with all kinds of money in his pockets. He was coming back with nothing. He was coming back smelling like pigs and disgusting things from out in the field. When his father saw him, he knew why he, why he was coming back. But nonetheless, even though he knew why he was coming back, what happened before he, his father said anything to him? The Bible says his son confessed and repented. He confessed those things to his father. He has sinned against him. And after that is when the blessings were truly restored. What happens after forgiveness? Well, we know that when we, when we repent of our sins, that we are forgiven at baptism, Acts 22, verse 16, as we find here. It says, Now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. What is he doing? He's arising to have to be baptized so his sins can be washed away. It's calling the name of the Lord. He's doing what? He's calling on God to wash away his sins as he's being baptized. He's not calling out to God in the prayer. You could say he's calling out to God in the sense by his actions, by being obedient. But it's not a prayer. It is an action-filled sequence here. Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Calling on the name of the Lord. How do we do that? By obedience to the gospel. Our sins are washed away at baptism. We find next that we are our sins are forgiven. We are we are a servant of God. We are a Christian. We can re, we can return to be a servant of God. In Romans six verse twenty two, the Bible says, "But now having been set free from sin, and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life." Having been what set free from sin, you can now be a servant of God. You notice you, can, you must have be set free from sin prior to being a slave of God, which is a reference to being a servant of God. We must be free from sin first. As we think about these things this morning, I think about how our God is merciful, ready to forgive, and to pardon. You think about Psalm 86, verses 3 through 5. Here the Bible says, Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I cry to you all day long. Rejoice the soul of your servant, for for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. For, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. He's talking about the power of God is coming to him to repent of sins, isn't he? You look here in verse 3, what does he say? Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I cry to you all day long. Somebody's praying to him. Rejoice the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. For you, Lord, are good 
and ready to forgive, and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. He says he is ready to forgive, right? Does this change what Paul says back in Romans, what Paul says back in Corinthians about godly sorrow? That doesn't change. If there was no godly sorrow, he could cry out to God all day long. But if he wasn't really sorry over his sins, nothing changes. He wasn't really wanting to change to be right inside of God and have God be pleasing with him once to be pleased with him once again, then nothing changes. Our God or excuse me, God's forgiveness is conditional. Man must repent before forgiveness and pardon is granted. If you look to Acts chapter two, and this won't be on the screen. But if you look at Acts chapter 2, if you'll just turn with me there. We know this is the day the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles in Acts 2, verses 1 through 4. And we know that those there thought they were drunk with wine because they could hear their, they could hear them speaking in their own language, each apostle speaking a different language, and they all could hear them speaking. And we find here that Peter responds and says, they're not full of new wine in verse 14. Or they, they say they're full of new wine. In verse 14, Peter responds and begins his sermon on the day of Pentecost. He begins to preach. He begins to teach. He reminds them of who Christ is. reminds them what they have done. And we get down to verse 37. Verse 36, rather. He says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know as surely that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, that is, everything that Peter had said, not just verse 36. When they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? What do they mean by that question? What shall we do? They want to know what they can do to make themselves right before God. And look what Peter says in verse 38. Then Peter said to them, Repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent, be baptized for the remission of sins. That's what Peter told them. You know, we find that same principle throughout the book of Acts. You think about this for a second. How many times does the Bible say something for it to be accurate? Just once, right? One time. Would Peter tell them something, and then Paul tell them something different? Well, that'd be contradictory, wouldn't it? That would have the scriptures going against one another. The Bible tells us that can't be right. No, instead what we find is in Galatians chapter three, verses twenty six and twenty seven. If you want to turn there, in Galatians chapter three. Verses 26 and 27. Notice what the Apostle Paul says. And a different man talking to a whole different group of people. And what does he say to them? Galatians 3, 26 and 27 says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Well, that's not all he said, was it? For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. But there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male or, or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. As many as you are baptized into Christ. What did Peter say? Be baptized. Paul said, be baptized. Peter tells us that we are to do what? We are to be baptized. That our sins are going to be washed away at 
baptism and not before. Peter tells us this. James tells us that works alone or faith alone will not save throughout James chapter 2, for example. And we find Christ told them the same thing in John chapter 3, right? What we know as the new birth. He told them to what? We had to be born of the water and of the blood. If you think about John chapter 3, Beginning in verse 3, Jesus answered and said to them, Most truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus asked if they can be born again, and Christ replies in verse 15, Most truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, the Spirit, and he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. What did he tell them to do? They had to be born again. How does that happen? At baptism. Romans chapter 6 tells us the same exact thing, doesn't it? That we have to be baptized so we can have those sins washed away. You're buried with Christ at baptism. And we rise in newness of life. He says in Romans 6 and verse 3, Do you not know that many of us who were baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore we are buried with Him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. We become a new person when? When we are baptized and we rise up in that watery grave. We think about forgiveness of God. If we're not a Christian, we find forgiveness when we obey the gospel. We hear God's word, as we find in James chapter 1 and verse 22, and also Romans 10 verse 17. We hear that word. We cannot obey what you, cannot, what you have not heard. You believe that Christ is the Son of God. John 12 and verse 44. We believe. We hear we believe. And then what do we do? Based upon what we have heard and based upon what we believe, we repent of our sins. Luke chapter 13, verses 2 and 3. We repent of our sins. We hear, we believe, we repent, and we confess that Christ is the Son of God. We confess it before others, before we are baptized, because we're not free to do so. If you believe that Christ is the Son of God, absolutely. Mom should be ashamed to say that. And every day after, we, we live like we believe that Christ is the Son of God. Then we are baptized for remission of our sins. As we saw there in Romans 6, we can also see Mark 16, 16, and Acts 22, 16, and many others. We are baptized for the remission of our sins. And then we live faithfully to God. John 14, 15 tells us, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, right? Now you think about it, those are the steps we find for God's plan for man's salvation throughout the New Testament. You know, none of those things are difficult. We're not required to speak in tongues as someone tried to tell you you had to do. You're not required to kneel at a bench to pray until you feel like you've raised up and now you're saved. No. We hear, we believe, we repent, we confess, we are baptized, and then we live faithfully. That is God's plan for man's salvation. Now, we could look at all the different ideas that man has out there, but there's no need. All we need to know is God's plan, because God's plan is the one that matters. We think about forgiveness today. If we're not a Christian, we have just heard how we can obtain forgiveness. If we are a Christian, we know what we can do to obtain forgiveness if we have sinned against another or against God. We can confess those things. We can ask God to forgive us of those things. We can even ask others to pray for us as well as you find there in James 
uh, chapter 5, also we find in Acts chapter 17 and verse 20. This morning, if you think about the forgiveness of God, it is a very powerful thing. It is a very humbling thing to think about how God is so ready to forgive. But we have to ask ourselves, are we ready to do what's necessary so we can have forgiveness from God? This morning, as you think about these things, we can help you or encourage you in any way. You can come forward now. See so how we stand and sing the song that's been selected. <laughs>